You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. Well, welcome on this uh, long weekend. I don't know if I've told you what I appreciate about people. I like people who like to fight. Now, don't get me wrong. Here's what I don't mean. I don't like fighting. Uh, I don't like argumentative people. I don't like people who uh, love to squabble. And you know these people, don't you? Have you ever met someone who never misses a good fight? They're always looking for a scrap. I've got a friend like that. It's kind of uh, influenced our relationship. It hasn't gone well these past few days. I think of the movie 1917. It had a word in there, uh, a line in there, some men just like to fight. And the Bible says to avoid people like that. So if you come across somebody who's, I think the, one of the biblical words I love is pugnacious. Uh, I think that's in the uh, King James Version or the old ver- versions. If you come across somebody who uh, loves a good scrap, the Bible actually says to avoid people like that. So run them out of the church. I don't do that a lot. I don't run people out of the church. Uh, at the beginning, we said welcome. You know, this church uh, welcomes whether you're a, a believer, whether you're searching, we welcome you. There's one kind of person we don't welcome, and those are divisive people. We run them out of the church. We, actually, we don't welcome false teachers. Uh, I've run a couple out of the church. I've said, you're not welcome to come back here. But everyone else, like, welcome. Like, if you're seeking, but if you're here to divide the church or to poison the church, you're not welcome here. Uh, and Titus 3 says this, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Pause here. Uh, this is in my notes. This is one of the privileges we have as a church of creating a culture within this church. And part of the culture that I hope will persist here over the next decades of ministry in Liberty Village is one that carefully guards this church from argumentative people uh, that just drives out people and says, you're welcome here, but if you're here to divide and argue, you're not welcome here. Uh, You need to leave. Hopefully you'll change and repent, but you need to leave if you're not willing to do that. Okay, but I love people who care enough to fight. So what do I mean? I don't mean argumentative people. Here's what I mean. I love people who fight for their children, don't you? I respect parents who have kids who go through hard times, and the parents say, we will not lie down. We are going to fight for our kids. We're going to agonize in prayer. We are going to uh, love our kids. We're just going to, we're going to tell our kids the truth. We're going to do everything we can to win our kids back. I love husbands and wives who fight for their marriages. Uh, I love husbands and wives who go through hard times and uh, their marriages begin to tank and they say, we are not giving up. They say, remember we stood and we promised in front of people that for better, for worse, and I understand marriages fail. If your marriage has failed, I'm not, uh, the last thing I wanna do is heap condemnation on you, but what I'm saying is, as somebody who's married and has had to fight through difficult times, I love people who say, I'm going to do whatever I can to fight for this marriage. I love people who love me enough to sometimes tell me the truth, even though it's hard for me to hear. They're fighting for my good. They're fighting for what I need to hear. 
I love men and women who love God so much that they're willing to fight for him. They're willing to uh, even lay down their lives for God, no matter what it takes. I could go on and on. I have, the older I get, the more I just love people who are willing to fight for what's worth it. I have all the time in the world. I have no time for argumentative people. I have all the time in the world for people who fight for what's valuable. Now, why am I bringing this up? You might be surprised that God has that kind of fight. You might be surprised to hear that God is a fighter. You might never have thought of God as a fighter before, but in the book of Joel, we encounter God who is a fighter. We're well on our way through the Bible this year. As you know, uh, I was saying to Shar, it feels like somebody's taken 2023 and they've said, you know, this is going too slow and they've kind of turned the dial and now it's like, you know, slow down, come on. Like, it, how did we get to August, right? And how are we like well into August? Next week we're in the middle of August, slow down. We're well on our way through the journey th through the Bible. And today we're looking at uh, one of the prophets uh, called a minor prophet, which really means a uh, smaller prophet. Minor doesn't mean unimportant. Minor means smaller. And it's actually one of the smallest books in the whole Bible. So I encourage you to read it. If you haven't read Joel, uh, read it. I think I remember hearing a preacher say, uh, one day we'll get to heaven. Uh, we'll meet all these prophets. You'll be meeting Joel and Joel will say, hey, how did you like my book? And you'll be there like, uh, awkward, like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure it was good. Uh, I, I, yeah. I encourage you, read Joel, it's excellent. Read all the minor prophets, it's so good. We don't really know much about Joel. We only know, we don't know when he prophesied. Often with the prophets, you know, uh, kind of the king they served under, you know the circumstances. Here, we know one thing about Joel, we know his father's name, verse one, Harold read it. Otherwise, we don't know the date, we have guesses, we don't know the details of the offenses, but we do know his message. And here's his message. God is a fighter. God is a God who fights. God is a God who cares enough to fight for what's uh, worth fighting for. Now this is, on one hand, very shocking news for us. For a lot of us think God is some, you know, I don't know what you think of God, right? A lot of us have a very twisted view of what God is. We think of him as being, you know, the popular image of being a grandfatherly, uh, benign creature uh, somewhere and here, the, the picture that this part of God's character that's revealed to us is, do not picture some passive, distant character. God is a God who fights. God is a God who burns with passionate anger and love for his people. By the way, their flip side, you know, God's anger and his love are, why does he fight? Because he loves. We're gonna see that today. The reason that he fights is because he cares. He is not apathetic. And that is very good news for us. God is not there shrugging his shoulders when he looks at his people going, eh, what are you gonna do? God is a God who deeply cares. God is a God who cares enough to fight. And that's very good news for us. We're gonna see today, actually it's uh, both good and bad news. We're gonna see that there's a good side to it, but there's a fearsome and scary side to it. So. Here's what we learn in the book of Joel. We learn that God is prepared to fight. And here is, there's two ways that we see God fights in the book of Joel. And here's the good news. I'll give you the good news first, and then I'll give you the double-edged side second. 
Here's the good news. God fights for his people. Now, if you're going to be if you're going to be completely accurate here, you have to say God fights both with and for his people. So Joel is pretty short. It's only three chapters. You can read it in no time at all and shorter than this sermon is going to be. And in chapters one and two, God is fighting against but also for his people. Here is the problem. The people only see that God is fighting against them and they don't realize that God is actually fighting for them as he fights against them. And so Harold read the passage. I'll just uh, read it again and fill it in a little bit. Uh, it begins with this in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. So it's like, hey guys, listen up. I've got something important to say. And then he says, has such a thing happened in your days or in your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So what he's saying here is, many times, we were just with Shard's family uh, this past week, and uh, we got talking about, like, man, hottest summer in record. And Char's father will say, yeah, Char's father is in his mid-80s, and he'll go, I remember when, way back, we had a summer when you would not believe how hot it was. And he's like, um, I've lived, I, nothing new, I've seen this before, we've had hot summers before. And you're like, no, but it was a record-breaking. He's like, don't tell me record-breaking. I've lived it. You know, this is... What Joel is saying here is, has such a thing happened in your days or the days of your fathers? What he's saying is the people who are alive there, you're like, hey, dad, granddad, has this ever happened before? No, never seen anything like this. You know the word that we hate now after COVID? Unprecedented. These are unprecedented times. This is what Joel is saying. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. And then he says, uh, tell your children of it and their children to another generation. Uh, let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. In other words, this is going to be talked about for generations to come. Like what's happening is so severe. It's not like nobody's seen it before and it's going to be talked about for generations to come. What is it? And it, kind of picture this. This sounds so minor to us today. You're going to read this and go, what's the big deal? But it is a big deal. What the, coding, uh, the cutting locust left, so the one type of locust comes, you're like, phew, I'm so glad that locust is gone because there's stuff left over. Well, then the swarming locust comes in and eats it. And then the swarming locust leaves and you're like, phew. And then the hopping locust comes in and eats more. And then the hopping locust leaves and the destroying locust comes. And so, you know, you and I think, oh, cute, grasshoppers, right? Like, isn't that, like, big deal? You know, the reality is, uh, what we're talking about here is total destruction of the crops. Complete and utter crop failure. So serious that it would take years to recover. If you can picture the, uh, I had a beautiful drive this week up in, Highway 9, I had to do a funeral, and so I was driving from Charlene's parents, her family was in town, and I felt like I was miles away from Toronto, and you're seeing these cornfields, you're seeing all these amazing, like it's just amazing, you get out of Toronto, you're like, they still grow food here. So I thought it all came from California and Mexico, it's like, no, there's still food here. Well, imagine if one year, all the crops were completely destroyed. And just to picture that, like you go to the grocery store, you know how inflation is already high? 
picture just bare shelves. Like there's nothing there. And what you can get is like, there's almost nothing. That's what we're talking about here. And this is not hard to imagine. To this day, locusts continue to be a major problem around the world. A huge percentage of the world, especially in Africa, is still affected by severe uh, locusts. If you look at the 80s, there was a period of a number of years where uh, it was actually like a plague of locusts for many years. Uh, they cover vast areas. They, like, miles, like the air is full of them. And they uh, devastate crops. They wipe out produce of, like, entire countries and whole areas. They ca it can lead to famine and starvation even today. I, I read that one swarm can eat millions of plants every day. And so you're talking about, even today, this is something where if you were in Africa saying, uh, parts of Africa saying, a swarm of locusts are coming, they would get this passage. They would say, like, this is bad. This is really bad. In verse 10, Joel says, this is the result of this. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. A poetic language, the, the ground is like, ah, oh, like, this is horrible. What's happened? Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Now, you and I are saying, whoopie-doo, right? Like, I don't really care about the grain, the wine, the oil. Like, I can go a week or two without grain or oil or wine. No, no big deal. But uh, as one scholar says, grain, wine, and oil were basically the staples, the staple diet of Mediterranean countries. Uh, so the grain was used to make bread. The fruit of the vine was your daily drink. Olive oil was for cooking, cleaning, uh, lighting and a lot of other things. And so what he's talking about, when he's talking about like grain, you can't eat, wine, there's nothing to drink, oil, like you can't turn on lights, like you can't do anything. Their whole way of life has been destroyed. We can cope with most things until our basic lifestyle is affected. Uh, in Liberty Village a few years ago, I don't know how many people were living here. Uh, do you remember the floods that came that one year? Uh, on King Street, you know, the underpass there was completely flooded. The power was out. It was bad. And I remember being in my condo going, how many days is this going to be? Like, we can't travel anywhere. The electricity is out. You're opening the fridge going, like, I think we can last a day. Like, you're starting to eat all the ice cream because you're like, what do we do with this? It's like, we're not going to throw it out. So, and then you're like, I have no cell phone. I have, like, there's nothing, like, you're thinking, we can't live this way. Or the water's off. Do they ever turn off your water in your condo? And you're thinking, like, you're looking at your clock going, it's been an hour. Like, every time you go to rinse, wash your hands or get a cup of water, you're like, we can't live this way. This is bad. Now, that's just a microcosm of Imagine if this was our reality. Imagine the electrical grid was down. The cell phones were down. The grocery stores were closed. It is bad. In chapter 2, uh, I'm going to just give you a preview. Joel says, this is a coming preview of, of what's coming. It actually, there's going to be an invading army. So the locusts are part one, and invading army is part two. So in other words, it gets worse. And all of this to say, what is Joel saying here? The people are saying, God, why? And here's a message of Joel. God is fighting for his people. God is so committed to his people that he's willing to use extraordinary means to get their attention. 
You know, for the people in uh, Joel's day, they were looking at all this stuff happening, going, why? And Joel comes along and says, let me tell you why. God is fighting against you because he's actually fighting for you. God is trying to get your attention. He's trying to wake you up. And the only way he can wake you up is to make you feel your need of him. Now, let me be clear here. Life is complicated. The Bible does not teach that anytime something bad happens, that it's because God is punishing us or trying to get our attention. Life is much more complex than that. It does teach that God is intimately involved with every detail of our lives, every detail of our lives. And it could be that sometimes, I think a lot of the times, God is using the circumstances of our lives to shape us. God is using the circumstances of our lives to mold us into the people that he wants to be. And sometimes God is using the circumstances of our life to awaken us from our lethargy so that we turn back to him. In other words, I'll put it this way, God is willing to fight for us. There was a period, again, not on my notes, where I was ignoring my wife. And uh, my wife came to my office one day and said, are you free for lunch? A simple question. Uh, by the way, husbands, unless something really busy is going on, you know what the right answer to that is? Are you free for lunch? Does anybody know the right answer to that? Yes, I'm free for lunch. No, I'm busy, like my whole day's full, but yes, like you're here, of course I'm free for lunch. And on that day I said, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry. And now for me to say I'm sorry, like I don't have time for you today would have been no big deal if I hadn't been neglecting her for like months before that. And on that day, Char fought, Char cared enough to fight for my attention. She woke me out of my lethargy and I woke up to the fact that our marriage was headed towards a crisis. To this day, I'm grateful that she, now I wasn't grateful at that time, but I was grateful that Char <laughs> fought for our relationship. And in the same way, God is willing to fight for us. God is willing to come into our lives and say, I'm going to get your attention here. You've been neglecting something, and I care enough about you to confront you and get your attention. So years ago, C.S. Lewis says this. You probably heard these words. We can ignore pleasure. I love pleasure. Like I, the odd time I've stayed at a five-star hotel, I've never felt like this is really hard to get used to. Like this bed is way too comfortable. The room service is way too convenient. Like this is hard, like slow down. It's always been like, I love this, right? You can easily ignore pleasure. We love pleasure. But pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The locusts come in, what's happening? God's like, I've been trying to get your attention. I've got a megaphone, and I'm going to rouse because you're not listening. I'm going to rouse you so that you pay attention to what I've got to say to you. So here's a question. Could God be fighting for you? You think that God's fighting against you? Could it be that God is actually fighting for you? Could it be that uh, what you're going through is not a sign of God's hatred of you or his anger towards you, but the fact that he's actually fighting for you, that he cares more about your heart than your comfort, that God cares much more about your character than your temporary happiness, that God is trying to get your attention to get you to turn back to him. Could it be, use, could it be that God uses calamity 
to save us from an even greater calamity that we're in danger of experiencing. Because here's what Joel says. Here's God's agenda. Just turn to chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Again, it's such a short book. Read it all later. In Joel chapter 2, the people are like, okay, it hurts, like we're losing everything. And God says, yet even now return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You know, when Shara confronted me that day, it wasn't because she was angry at me. No, don't get me wrong. But she wasn't angry at me because she hated me. She was angry at me because she wanted me to change my heart towards her. And she was hungry for reconnection. She wasn't tearing up our relationship. She was actually fighting for our relationship. And God here says, I'm getting your attention, but my intention is that you would return to me, that you would change your heart, that you would turn to me again because I'm here waiting. I can't wait to reconnect with you because I'm gracious and merciful and I relent over disaster. God's ultimate purpose is not to punish us. Uh, the punishment, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the punishment was paid by Jesus at the cross. Uh, God, there's no punishment for you anymore. The pu- you can't, he can't punish you. You know, it's the, God is just. He will never punish Jesus and you for the same sin. If Jesus has paid for your sin, there's no punishment for you. He's born it at the cross. Once you trust in Jesus, he will discipline us. Jesus, uh, God will discipline us to draw us back to him. His aim, though, is to restore us so that even the hard things that we go through are for our good. In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. By the way, are you glad that God gets jealous for you? Have you ever... Okay, so have you ever been in a relationship and uh, you, somebody's coming onto you that's not the person that you're in a relationship with and you're looking over and you're not you're not encouraging this but you look over and you see the person you are in a relationship with if they're giving you if if they're giving the other person the stink eye at that point that's a good sign isn't it that's a sign that are there isn't it amazing that god looks at you and says i'm jealous for you i want you i love you so much i'm just not going to look at you when you're flirting with uh other affections and go, eh, what are you going to do? Like, so they, I guess they're cheating on me, whatever. God is jealous. And so Joel says, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. Remember, these things God took away, they turned back to him and God says, I'm giving you grain, wine and oil. Everything that I took away, I'm giving you and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the people. In other words, God is saying, I'm only trying to get your attention. I'm not trying to take these things away from you. I love to lavish these gifts on you. But God is fighting for us because he's for us, because he wants what's best for, for us, even if it causes temporary pain. You guys know me well enough. I'm talking abstractions, right? I'm talking up here. Let me bring it down here. There was a singer-songwriter, and her name was Jennifer Rothschild. And she lost her sight due to retinal disease. She hated it. And this is what she said. She said, I thought, this is horrible. She says, I'll never be able to drive a car. 
I'm not going to be able to be an artist. I remember the disappointment of that, she said. And then I questioned, are boys going to want to date me? How am I going to finish high school? Will I be able to go off to college? She says, sitting in the back seat of a family car, driving away from the doctor where she got the news that she was going to be blind, I felt my fingertips and wondered if I would one day have to read Braille. I'm reflecting on this hardship, can you picture her being told you're going to go blind and hating this news? Here's what she says, reflecting on this. One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is that God uses painful circumstances in our lives for good. My hero, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been in a wheelchair since he was a teenager, makes this point well when she says, God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Hear that again. God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. I know that God's heart is broken when he see, sees our hearts break. I believe that just as Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus weeps when he sees us cry tears of loss. I'm convinced that God is well acquainted with the sorrow and struggles we experience. Yet at the same time, he loves me enough. That's why I'm so loyal to him. He loves me enough to let me encounter sorrow, taste bitter emotions, and feel loss. He trusts me to be a good steward of that sorrow. He loves me enough to let me experience that pain so we can accomplish something that he loves, which for me has been a deeper character and a more eternal perspective. I love that. I don't love that, actually. I, I both hate it and love it. But here's how God works. God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. He loves me enough to let me experience pain so that he can accomplish something he loves. Uh, and I can vouch for this. The hardest times of my life have been times that I've hated. I wouldn't wish on anybody. And yet God has done things in those times. He's shaped my character. I, I'm a different person than I would be if we hadn't gone through those times. Do you see right now, God could be fighting for you. Do you see right now, some of you have experienced this year, in your moments of pain, it's actually not that God has turned against you, but God is doing something in your heart. God cares enough to fight for you. His agenda is not to punish you, but to draw you back to him. That's the first thing that Joel teaches us. God is a God who fights. He cares enough to fight for you, and he'll use hardship if necessary to do that. But here's the sobering, the double-edged message. Uh, the first one is, I guess, double-sided too, isn't it, right? God is using pain to fight for you. He's sending pain in your life sometimes to fight for you. But here's the second fight that Joel brings. And this is a long weekend. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't have chosen this message, this part of the message. I have to preach what Joel is preaching. So this is a heavy one for a long weekend. But here's the second thing that Joel says. God will fight against those who finally reject him. The message of Joel is, look, if you're one of God's people, God's going to fight for you. But God will also, God cares enough to fight against people who ultimately reject him. So Joel's message is uh, basically, look, my people, I love you. The reason I'm sending hardship into your life is I'm fighting for you. My goal is to restore you. My heart is restoration. Come back to me. I'm ready to receive you. I'll, I'll take you back instantly. But the other message of Joel is those nations that are rejecting me, those nations that are refusing to bow to worship me, I will fight them. And I won't fight them because I'm fighting for them. I will fight them in my holy judgment. 
I will fight them because they're fighting against me. In chapter 3, verse 2, uh, by the way, the, in the prophets, uh, he keeps talking, the prophets keep talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord, uh, generally speaking, is not a good thing. It's a day of judgment. It's like when God shows up. Do you remember when, uh, I don't know if you guys had this happen, uh, when I was little, uh, my mother used to say uh, words that I don't know, probably nobody says anymore, wait till your father gets home. Did anybody ever hear those words? Was I the only one? And when my father came home, it was like, this is the day of vengeance. It's like, and I feel bad for my dad now looking back, right? Like he comes home from work, he's tired, and my mom goes to him and says, you wouldn't believe what Daryl did here. And it would be like, I would go hiding because my father's home. I knew I was facing the vengeance for all the wrong that I did. And that's what the prophet talks about. The day of the Lord is when God shows up and actually brings justice for all the wrong. So in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Here's the bigger picture Joel is saying. Lift up your eyes. You know the wrong that's been done to you? You know the sexual abuse that has happened against you? God, they didn't get away with it. One day they're going to stand before God if you're the victim of sexual abuse, understand this, God cares. One day, the, everyone who's uh, done the most horrific evil will stand before God. They might get away with it in this world. They will stand before God. They will get what's coming to them. So I'm listening to a book right now. Um, if you can picture a comedic book about a man who's cheated upon by his wife, and it gets to the point where he, he's like, I want to like, take vengeance. And then he realizes... I don't need to take vengeance. Like, I don't have to go after the guy who's cheating with my wife. I don't have to go after my wife. One day, they'll stand before God. Do you understand? One day, we don't have to do this. Like, God will stand and vengeance. I, I could go through a laundry list of, God says, one day, I will shake this world. Like, one day, I will fight. And I will fight for what's right. I will set everything that's wrong down here right everything that's been twisted and corrupted down here, I will set right. All the people who've rejected me and done evil and, and gotten away with it, one day they'll stand before a perfectly just judge, and I will fight for the good of my people. The double side here is, uh, I love how he says it, like the Lord's going to roar, and he says it's going to be like heaven and earth is going to quake, but he says, but the Lord will be a refuge to my people. Uh, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so what he's saying on that day, if you're trusted in, in Christ, you don't need to be afraid that day. As God roars, as the earth quakes, as heaven quakes, and we're all like, we see the perfect justice of God. He's like, you don't have to worry. If you've trusted in me, you're mine, you're safe. But on that day, if you persist in your rebellion, you can expect judgment and destruction. So much of the Bible is about this uncomfortable topic which is so necessary about universal judgment. We will all stand before God, accountable for our sins. Judgment will be done, perfect judgment. How will anyone stand? On that day, Putin will stand before God. On that day, Hitler will stand before God. 
on that day we will stand before God. On that day, everything will, we'll have to answer to the perfectly just judge. There's only one way anyone can stand on that day. Call on, this is J.I. Packer who said this, uh, Canadian theologian, uh, he says this, call on the coming judge to be your present savior. As judge, he is the law, but as savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now and you will one day meet him as judge without hope, but seek him now and you will find him. You will discover that you're looking forward to that future meeting with joy because now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, God is a God who fights. God is a God who fights for you. Uh, God is working in your life because he wants your heart. Uh, God is also a God who will one day fight against everything that's evil in this world. Our only hope on that day when justice is done is that we fled to Jesus and hidden in him. He is our hope. He's, and when we're in him, we can stand. We can know that we are his, both now and forever. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a fighter. Lord, I thank you that in your perfect uh, love for us, that you're willing to come after us. Lord, thank you for loving us this much. Um, thank you that you didn't just write us off when we sinned. Thank you that you sent Jesus to pursue us. And thank you right now that you're pursuing us even through the events of our lives so that we can, can turn back to you, that we can find in you everything that we need. And Lord, I pray for if there's anybody here who hasn't fled to Jesus as their Savior. Lord, we have nothing to fear uh, when we're in Christ. But on that day of judgment, if we're not in Christ, we have everything to fear. So, Lord, would we run to you? I pray that as we do so, that we would find our refuge in Jesus, that we'd experience him as our Savior, not as our judge, but as our Savior, and that we'll have that assurance that we'll be able to stand on that day. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.